and you're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. Amen. Well, who brought their Bible? Who brought their Bible? Hold those things up. Let me see them. Oh, good job, man. I'm seeing more and more of those uh, Bibles out there. We study the Bible here. If you are new to Bentry, that's what we do. I I love doing things like this. We don't get to enough. We try to pray for those going on mission trips. So if you're doing that, let us know. We want to pray for you. Family and friends, that's what we talk about. Um, We say this is the house of God. This is where God lives. Um, I guess I should have said my name's Paul, Paul Trimble. I'm the senior pastor here if you're, you're new. But when we talk about the house of God, make sure that you don't confuse what we're talking about. We're not talking about a building, a structure. We're talking about a group of people that God has called out of death and into life. We call these folks church family because that is what they are. They're part of God's family, of this local church. And although we don't always feel like uh, we belong as individuals, sometimes we get, even me, feel like everybody else is messed up and just me, uh, you know, we don't know how to fit this together. God is molding us and shaping us into a family, a group. And listen, we're div- we are a diverse group of people. If you think about jobs or personalities or uh, just where we are in life or uh, we... How do you take all that diversity and make it into a unified family? Well, what's so cool about diversity in the body of church is that's what a body is made up of. Different parts. I mean, a pinky, an elbow, a head, knees, feet. Boy, you name it. Check this out. The reason it is so important that you personally are part of a local body of believers is that we cannot, as individuals, become all that God called us to be unless we are part of a local body of believers. Doing life with them, going through the joys, going through the sorrows, going through the hard times of life, being served, serving others. Folks, this is how a body functions. Here's an analogy. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of this, a little rock tumbler that polishes rocks. Did you ever see one of those? Have you ever seen? There's like three or four of us that are, yeah, I love that. I love seeing those polished rocks. Well, what you do is you open this tumbler and you put these little rocks in and they're rough and ugly looking, but you put a little active agent in there that'll bump against it, kind of polish it. But then the rocks, as they tumble together, bouncing off each other, they break off the edges, they polish each other. And all the tro- although the church body is global, it's all over the world, where we actually live right here is how we do church, local church. This is the tumbler, if you will, of God helping us shape, it each, shape each other. And especially your D3 groups. That's where you do life together. I mean, that's why I say it's good to be in the house of the Lord. Because Jesus is here, amen? Holy Spirit is here, and you are here. Our brothers and sisters in the faith, we're bumping against each other. We're hearing the word of God preached And it's going to polish us, make us perfect. I hope you feel the same way. Some of you are in those D3 groups, some in serving teams. Maybe you're starting to feel that love of God, a deep for the members of this church. And and some of you that are like just kind of on the fringes, you know, maybe not ready to commit yet. uh, We hope you jump in. We do. Make this church your home. 
Make us your family. Quit being so standoffish. We want you in. Well, let's get moving today. We're in a series titled, So That You May Believe. As we walk our way carefully through the gospel of John, verse by verse, this is some powerful stuff that God's got for us today. But first, would you just bow your head? Let's, let's go to God about this and pray. God, our Father in heaven, we're just so thankful. Just thankful for the chance to join together as brothers and sisters in Christ and in this family to hear your word preached. God, our freedom is wonderful, thank you. But God, we lift up brothers and sisters right now meeting around the world, local churches that are meeting in secret, singing quietly, preaching softly so they don't get caught, God, especially for those brothers and sisters. My heart breaks for them, God, in Afghanistan. They're facing all these new threats. God, we pray for their protection just to face whatever that may come. God, we pray for even the persecution that instead of the Taliban killing the church, that it would actually grow. We pray for Taliban members to get saved. But God, we're even more amazed than our freedom that you gave us your words in Scripture that, that your Holy Spirit would just reveal the deep three things today. We pray that. So God, I'm praying lives be changed. Mine too. All of us, this is, that our hearts would be molded by the Spirit's work through your word being carefully taught. As you guys just take a moment to pray, you, you take a moment to just pray as a God, uh, to pray to God as individuals. And if there are sins that you need to repent of, just do that right now. Just get them off the, get them off your chest. Pray to God. And then ask God to prepare your heart to hear from him. Oh, Father, God, we take this time and we give it to you. Uh, it is in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I began by prepping today for this sermon. I felt like I was ready well, to move on beyond what we've been on the last few weeks. But as I prayed, as I studied and thought about it, prayed some more, got on my knees, prayed, I just did not feel ready to move on. Uh, I think that was the Holy Spirit. I'm sure it was. Um, thank you for your patience with me. Some of you, uh, I know, must be frustrated at times with me. Paul, why don't you go faster? Uh, you're a preacher. Go faster. Uh, but this as we work through the Gospel of John, the first half of chapter 3, it's right here at the end of this, this late night conversation between this leading Pharisee, this leading teacher of Israel named Nicodemus and Jesus. It's here that something takes place I don't want us to miss. Now we've spent weeks on chapter 3, but it's the most important question that can be asked in all the world. Namely, when Nicodemus asked the question that's on his heart, how can someone enter into the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus' answer, he says, you must be born again. And then he explains what he means by that answer. Next week, God willing and hope we're hoping, we're able to move on to the next section in chapter 3. As the apostle John leaves behind this conversation and, and, and moves on to talking to John the baptizer again. 
And we learn what we learn from John the baptizer is so great. I promise you. But for today, let's just ask this question um, that Nicodemus is on, that's on his heart as well. Uh, we're going to look at verses 19 through 21. Would you stand in reverence to the word of God being read aloud? But let's just really drill down in verses 19 through 21. <clears throat> Listen as I read. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only son of God. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. Thank you, Lord, for the reading of your word. Amen? You may be seated. Let's think through some of what we've learned here in just the last couple of weeks. The key here to be saved to be able to enter the kingdom of heaven was what? What does Jesus say it is? What's the key? Jesus says belief. Specifically in what? Well, not what, but who? He says in verse 16, that's right. But everyone who believes in him, Jesus, will not perish but have eternal life. There's the truth. That's the good news. Literally. The gospel. But don't forget here in verse 17. Look in your Bible. This should be just underlined like crazy. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Who's him? Jesus. Now, why didn't Jesus come into the world to condemn the world? Why did he come to save it? Think carefully. Because Jesus tells us anyone who does not believe is already condemned, right? Do you see that in verse 18? He didn't have to condemn the world for their sin. The world already stood condemned. They were already found guilty. We studied that last week, right? This is the picture that I gave you a few weeks ago. Remember this. Remember that long line of prisoners all in the black and white striped prisoner outfits. They're guilty. They're chained together. Guys with big guns on them. And you realize, man, if they could just get free of these chains, they'd do their crimes all over again. Rape, murder, steal. Chained together. Guilty, guilty, guilty. That's all of us. And it's out of that lineup that Jesus calls people to salvation. Amen? He doesn't come to condemn them because they are already condemned. Guilty. But what does he do that saves them? He calls them from death to life. Now we see that parallel truth here, don't we? Both are true. Both man's responsibility to believe and at the same time, God's sovereignty in who he chooses to save. Both are true. And both are unsettling. 
When we try to compare them, there's a tension there that just doesn't work in our little finite minds. We can't figure out how to make that stuff to work together. But that's not really our job, is it? Our job is to look at Scripture, to believe what it says, and and what it teaches from Genesis to Revelation. And that's what it teaches. But now let's turn our attention to verse 19. Because there's some solid gold. Solid gold. But we're going to have to dive deep to get it. You want to dive deep? Want to go deep? Let's grow deep too. Jesus gives Nicodemus a definition. He says this is how people were judged guilty. Here's Jesus. He gives the definition. He says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. All through the gospel of John, you're going to see this comparison of light versus darkness. John talks about it the whole way through. Now don't miss this because it's huge. What is the light Jesus is talking about here? It's it's himself, right? Jesus is the light. The God of the universe, this creator God, the the second member of the Trinity, this all-powerful son of God steps into the created order that he fashioned himself. And at the will of God the Father, The Son of God takes on flesh. In other words, the will of God the Father directs Jesus, God the Son, to take on flesh. And Jesus does it. He comes into the world. But remember, in 319 of John, Jesus is talking about this light coming into the world. The light is going to have an effect. So what is the effect of the light? Jesus of Nazareth is the effect. He is, he is the light, but look what, he's, what happens in the physical world. He's born in Nazareth to a little virgin teenager named Mary. He, lives, he leaves this perfect life in heaven, this relationship with a, a holy God, the Father, and the Son of God um, takes on flesh. And no one notices. <laughs> Here on earth, no one notices. Now all of heaven, we, there's that song we said, all of heaven holds, holds its breath going, oh God's taking on flesh. But no one notices on earth. But I, I shouldn't say no one notices. A handful of people, Mary, um, Joseph, his presumed father, presumed father, John the Baptist's parents, Zacharias and Elizabeth. Um, the shepherds, a handful of shepherds know. And it has a profound effect on all those people. But not many people know. And next week we'll see again John the Baptizer. He knows the light has come into the world. He's the one that is the forerunner. But look at Jesus' disciples himself. Um, Jesus, um, I'm sorry, he describes the light as being himself. No one sees the light at first. Now why doesn't anyone see the light? Jesus answers his own question. You see, people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Now, here's the thing. Why did they love darkness? What's, what darkness is there? What is Jesus talking about when he talks about darkness? He's talking about sin. That's right. Do you see it right there? This is scary to me. Don't miss this. It's not just that people of the world didn't see any light. Oh, they saw it. But what they loved, what they longed for was darkness. Now, why did they love the darkness? I think this is going to be eye-opening. It is to me. 
I know I'm going really slow, really careful here, but I really want you to see some gold buried deep. Question, why did the people of the earth love the darkness? Answer, because their deeds were evil. And you go, yeah, Paul, it says that. No, think about this. Why did people of the earth love the darkness? Because their deeds were evil. Their actions, the way they live, were evil. That's what Jesus is saying here. Now, maybe this seems, I don't know, too simple for us. But I promise right here, this is where we see the difference between good and evil. Right here. I'm talking about in the world and in me too. And seeing this and understanding this, we can look at our own behavior, how we live, and we can begin to understand why we do what we do. For you believers in Christ Jesus, you Christians, have you ever had this thought, ask this question of yourself? Okay, I'm saved and I know what is wrong I know what sin is, and I still want to do it. I still want to sin. Why is that? Have you ever asked that question? Like, I know what's right and wrong. I don't want to do the wrong thing because I know it's sin. I'm saved, but I still desire that sin. And sometimes I fall for it. In days ending with why? That's messed up, isn't it? That's messed up. I know it's wrong. I know it's wrong. And I don't want it. And then I kind of want it. In fact, the Apostle Paul talks about this in his own life in regards to sin. See if this sounds familiar. Look in Romans 7, verse 15. He says, for I do not understand what I am doing. Because I do not practice what I want to do. But I do what I hate. Now, if I do What I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. Talking about the law is good. So now, I am no longer the one doing it, doing sin, but it is sin living in me. Now, keep watch, keep watching this. For I know that nothing good lives in me. That should be underlined in your Bible. Nothing good lives in me. That is my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now, if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one that does it. But it is the sin that lives in me. Brother, this is not easy stuff. I know that's a lot to think about. See this though. Some have said, well, the Apostle Paul right here, he's talking about what life was like before he was a Christian. What he felt like before he was saved. But the problem with that is there's no indication of that in Scripture at all. In fact, there's every indication in Scripture that Paul's talking about his life in Christ, living it out as an apostle. That Paul is experiencing this thing that you and I, as believers, experience every day. 
This is the paradox of salvation by faith alone. Martin Luther, one of the early church reformers, described it in Latin. Here's the Latin. Simul justus et peccator. The believer in Jesus is simultaneously justified and sinner. Write this down. The believer in Jesus is simultaneously justified and sinner. This is a simple saying, but unpacking it is not so simple. We'll do it more in the future, but what we see here is with that Romans 7, with Paul is talking about, he's saying, I've been declared holy, I've been made right through Jesus before God. He's saying, I'm justified before holy God because of faith in Jesus Christ. His death, his uh, sacrifice has paid for my sin. Faith that he took my place, as Paul's saying. Jesus took my place. He took my punishment, my sin, I owed. He was crucified and died for my sin. He killed my sin. Amen? Paul's saying that. Believing Jesus has sacrificed for my sin, the perfect sacrifice, but at the very same time, understanding that I still struggle with sin and temptation every day. I'm still a sinner in that respect. I'm just forgiven. I've been declared righteous, but I still struggle with sin. Paul here in this passage is like a little kid whose parents catch uh, doing something wrong that he knows he shouldn't be doing wrong. And the, the parents go, why are you doing that? And the little kid says, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why I'm asking this way. What the Apostle Paul is pointing out here is that with every single Christian, what we feel, at least at some points in our lives, even possibly today or later on, you may feel this, we think, I believe this about who I am in Christ Jesus, and I know what I'm supposed to be doing, but I'm not doing it. In fact, I'm doing the exact opposite of what I'm supposed to be doing. Why? Now listen closely. Even an unsaved person can say this as well. An unsaved person, a non-believer, who simply knows the Bible and what they read in it, right versus wrong. And you would expect that from an unsaved person. But this seems like it shouldn't be true of a Christian, a true believer in Christ. But what does Paul conclude here about this feeling we all have with the temptation you and I have? He says, I agree with the law that the law is good. In other words, it doesn't have power to save, but the law is good. Paul is saying the teachings of God in the Bible are good, right, and true. By the, word, by the way, the word good there, and the Greek literally trans, translates to beautiful. The law is beautiful. The law is noble. The law is excellent for living. Paul concludes that it is no longer I myself who does the sin. Literally, he's saying it's no longer me producing the desire to sin. But it's the sin still living in my flesh. Now hang on. Hang on. Paul is not condoning the continuance of sin. No, he's saying fight against it. Understand where this evil is coming from and you fight against it. 
What's interesting is so many times people will say something like, well, the devil is just fighting me, and maybe it is. But most of the time, it's just my sinful self. What Paul is saying is the battle becomes even more fierce as a Christian grows in their spiritual maturity because that now that we're saved, now that we're forgiven in Christ Jesus, the sin and the death that comes with it, we're forgiven. But in our bodies, we are still desiring sin even though we hate sin. And we know it only brings death and pain. How many of you know death and pain come from sin? Oh, you know firsthand. Even though we know we're forgiven of it, we still desire it. Where does that come from? Paul is saying it's still living here within us as we live on this earth. Now, eventually, when Jesus takes us home to heaven in his return to earth, or when we die physically... Sin and the temptation to sin for believers will be gone. Amen? We won't even be able to sin. Like it won't be a desire, won't be able to sin. Sin and death will be no more. But until then, check out this truth. It's a battle. It's a dogfight. It is a fight to the finish. And the battle intensifies, listen, as we get closer to the light, and I'm talking about knowing Jesus more. What we mean is that as you grow in your faith, in your relationship with Jesus, the Holy Spirit of God working within us begins to start to root out sin, deep, hidden sin. Sometimes we didn't even know that we had that sin. And here's the thing. We're already forgiven of it. But God is going, I know you didn't know this, but let's get that out of you, that poison that's in you. Let's get it out. And you're like going, but I kind of like it. I kind of like that. The light of Christ Jesus is driving out the darkness within us. Now, can I just share with you a just strange thing I have noticed as I have grown more mature in Christ Jesus over the years. The sins of my youth that I knew that were wrong then and I know that they're wrong now. I know I'm forgiven of them. But as I get closer to the light and the Holy Spirit is working in me, I grieve those sins even more. As I look at God's word, I just go, I just didn't know. I knew they were wrong. I just didn't know they were that bad. I didn't know sin was that awful. I rest in Jesus' grace and forgiveness. Amen? I feel his love. But it's distinctively because of his love and that forgiveness that I love him all the more. It makes my sin so much more horrible, so much more black, so much more evil. I I mean, I'm forgiven of it. You are too. Therefore, it makes me want to avoid sin at all costs because I hate the ugliness. And I love the Savior so much. Have you experienced that? Is this connecting at all? Like what the Apostle Paul is talking about here in Romans 7. Okay, let's go back to Genesis 3 for for just a moment. We walked through this a little bit last week. Let's drill down in Genesis 3 just a little bit more. I think you're going to see something here. Adam and Eve, the first man, the first people, the first man and woman, 
They're free when they're created, before sin. They can either follow God and keep his commands, stay in the garden, eat of any tree in the garden, even the tree of life, except there's one tree that God says, do not eat of this one tree. Eve is deceived by Satan, though the, through the serpent, and then hands her husband, Adam, who is apparently standing right next to him, the forbidden fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now get this. Some of you get wrapped around the axle of, of going, what's in that fruit? It's not, the, it's not in the fruit. It's in the disobedience that they ate the fruit. Do you see what I mean? Adam eats, he sins, eats the forbidden fruit. Now notice that before they eat, they are free to choose to not sin or they are free to choose to sin. You with me? But once they choose to sin, what happens? Their eyes are open. They see that they're naked. So they took some leaves, they sewed them together, and they try to cover their shame, right? Pick it up, pick it up in verse 8 here, Genesis 3. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. This is huge. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Now what's amazing to me here is that sin, that the first thing that it does, the effect of that first sin is to cause Adam and Eve shame. I mean, think about it. They're married, but now they're trying to cover even from each other. The second effect there is they want to hide their shame. And where do they hide? This is important. Verse 8 says, they hide from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, don't let me lose you. Did you ever play the game hide and seek? When you're growing up, I loved that game. I, I loved it. I was so good. I was really good at it. I'd find the best hiding place. I remember one time they were all looking for me. I could hear them for like for a long, long time. And finally the... You know, there was just no noise, and I finally came out, and like, I realized, I won! You know? I won! (laughs) I won! But then, look at this. Everyone had gone home. (laughs) I was alone. I thought, I won, but I'm alone now. Let's think about this. Adam and Eve hide in the garden trees. They seek out darkness. What are they trying to hide? Shame. From who? God. Each other. But why? Their sin has caused their shame. Now it's funny to me in a weird kind of way. God is all knowing. (laughs) Jerry Shockley, one of our shepherding elders, he says, did it ever occur to you that nothing ever occurred to God? He knows all. He's asking, where are they? He's walking in the garden. Now, why is that funny? God knows everything about, well, everything. 
God knew where they were. He knew what they had done. Come on. This is God, right? So why does he ask the question, where are you? He he wants them to see where they are. They're in darkness, under the leaves of the tree. What God is really asking Adam and Eve, God is asking the first man and woman, where are you in relationship to me? God is asking the first man, the first woman, where are you in relationship to me? Now that is the question God is asking us to answer as well. So maybe you ask that right now. Where am I in relationship to God? Don't misunderstand. God knows who is lost, who is saved. He's wanting us to know by asking the question. Us asking the question. So ask that question. Where are you in relationship to God? Right now. And then where are you hiding? Well, where is Adam and Eve hiding? They're in the shadow of the tree, so where are you hiding? Now, this is significant to me because think about Adam and Eve and these trees in the garden. What are the trees? I'm being super basic. They're, they're part of creation, right? Just like Adam and Eve, the trees are created. The garden are created. The rocks, everything in creation. That's why it's called creation. But unlike Adam and Eve, these trees, in fact, all the rest of creation... All the rest of the created order, they don't have a soul and a spirit. They have no way to connect to God. The thing that separates us from the rest of creation is that originally you and I were created to have a relationship with God who is spirit. Now think about a relationship with an all-powerful God, a close relationship. But the rest of creation doesn't have that. Now go with me here. Adam and Eve seek out the darkness in the trees. They hide under the leaves from God when he comes looking for them, when they hear the sound of his voice. This beautiful, perfect world God had created for the benefit of man now becomes the thing man uses to try to hide from God. Think about this for a moment in your life. Before Christ Jesus calls you into life, And we believe in Jesus as our Savior and Lord. What do we try to do to fill our need for God that only a relationship with God can fill? Anything. Everything. I mean, we we like to point out drugs, sex, and rock and roll. You go, oh yeah, that's bad stuff. And yes, it could be any of that, any of those evils. But it could also be stuff that the world deems kind of good. I mean, we could take any part of creation... To try to stuff it in that hole that we have for God. Raising a family. Being the best mommy that you could ever be. Being the best dad. Working a job. Climbing the ladder of success. Politics. Man, we're going to have the best political party ever. We can fill it with sports. Watching them or playing them. We can fill it with shopping. Some of you are going, Paul, you're going too far now. Some of, some of you try to fill it with exercising. It's not bad. Except this bag that you try to fill that need with it. What I'm saying is, yes, there are some things that are definitely sin, right? From the beginning. But then there's tons of good things 
in creation that becomes sin because we try to hide from God in that creation. Are you with me? Just like Adam and Eve did with the leaves. I mean, the trees of the the gardener were not evil in and of themselves. The, The further sin comes in that Adam and Eve used those created things, their leaves, if you will, to try to hide from God. I've even used bent tree. Like, I'm going to make Bent Tree the best church in the world. What I'm really doing is I'm hiding from God sometimes. You see what I mean? Adam and Eve were using the leaves to try to hide from God. Now relate that back. Relate that back to John 3.19. This is the judgment, Jesus says. The light has come into the world and the people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Where are people in sin hiding? They're simply hiding in the trees again. What I mean is that they're using creation as a cover, but it doesn't work because Jesus knows, well, everything. We think of creation because it promises um, to fill our need for Jesus, doesn't it? That longing that we have for God in our lives, and it covers our shame in the last point, at least from our point of view, it covers our shame, but not from God's point of view. He still sees our sin. Look at what Jesus says in verse 20. He says, for everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it, so that his deeds may not be exposed. Now let me ask, Who is everyone that it's talking about here? Is it everyone, 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 or like like all people? Or is it everyone a subset of all people? I I think the answer is clearly it's a subset. Here's, Here's what we've got to understand. Jesus tells us how to distinguish between the two. He says, first, what does Jesus say that everyone who loves evil does? He says, they hate the light. And two, they avoid the light. So they hate it and they avoid it. What is the light? Who is the light? Jesus, yeah. Jesus, that's Jesus saying that as well. We know that for many reasons through scripture right here in John 3, but also when it says this in John 8, 12, we'll get here someday, John 8, 12, second half, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is not saying those who are born again will will still wrestle with temptation and sin on this earth, but those whose sins are covered and forgiven. Let me read that again. Jesus is not saying that we, those who are born again, will not still wrestle with temptation. In other words, we still will. But those sins are covered and forgiven. Amen? In the death of Jesus on the cross, he killed those sins. Now, what is so cool here? What is so great here is not only is Jesus the light, God himself, the son of God, came to draw out the darkness to rescue us, to draw us out. He wants a relationship with us so that we follow him. We will never walk in darkness again. Why? Because we have the light. By the way, this also points out that once we are saved by Jesus, we are always saved by Jesus. We don't get saved and then somehow Jesus loses us. Jesus said, anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness again, but will have the light of life. 
Never means never. Jesus won't lose us. Praise God. In fact, he, he prays to God the Father in chapter 6. I, he says this, I didn't lose one of those that you gave me. Not even one did I lose. That's a powerful and bold statement by Jesus. I believe him. Now let's read again, verse 21, John 3. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. For weeks, Jesus has been talking about being born again, about regeneration, being given life. He again is summing all of that stuff up for us right here. But don't miss what else Jesus is saying. In verse 21, when anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. Oh, please don't miss this. Let's be careful to break this out. Don't miss a word. Make sure you're getting all the meaning here. The first phrase, but anyone who lives by the truth. What is the truth? Well, Jesus, yes. But how else could we say that? The truth, what Jesus says, the Bible, the word of God. And John 17, Jesus is praying for his disciples just before he's about to be arrested and crucified. Jesus, he prays this. John 17, verse 17, he says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus literally prays to the Father that the truth, the word of God, would sanctify his disciples. He's talking about the Bible, God's word. The process is true for us as well. Jesus prays for all his followers that we would be sanctified by the truth. Jesus is praying that right now as he sits next to the Father. Sanctified means to be separated from the world, made holy, pure, By the word of God. The word of God. Do you get this? This is what is sanctifying us. It is a process Jesus is talking about. We are being sanctified, made holy, made pure by the reading, preaching, teaching of God's word. If we obey what Jesus has taught us in his word, both the Old Testament and New Testament, if we live our life based on that, could we say that we are living by the truth? Yes, 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 yes. So then what does Jesus say? But anyone who does live by the truth comes to the light. It's literally how you're coming to the light. What is he meaning here? It means this. If you love Jesus, you will keep his commands. You will keep his word. Imperfectly, but you will keep it. If you love Jesus, you will keep his commands. This is almost a direct quote from Jesus. Look at this. John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. He's talking about scripture. By the way, this goes against totally what the world teaches right now. Especially like what we looked at last week. Liberal church, progressive church. In other words, by keeping his commands, his word, you will draw closer to the light of Jesus. That's how you draw closer. Now, one of the big things we really try to do here at Bentry is called discipleship. Teaching others what Jesus taught us. That's the whole point of the Great Commission, Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. We go and make disciples. 
That's our job. Teaching people everything that God has taught us in scripture. This is how we live out our daily lives in Christ Jesus. Jesus, keeping his commands, doing what he said in scripture to do. And the result, well, first is that we will draw closer to Jesus. That's what we just saw. But then there is a second result that Jesus says. Look back in verse 21 of chapter 3 again. He says, but anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light. That's what we just learned. So that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. You see the second thing? What's the second result? And I would argue a much larger result here. That the Christian's works, meaning the things that a Christian does in his or her life for Christ, may be shown to be accomplished by who? God. Shown to who? The world. Let's see if we can summon it this way. A Christian's obedience to the commands of Jesus in the Bible will result in God getting the glory for the good things that we do. A Christian's obedience to the commands of Jesus in the Bible will result in God getting the glory for the good things we do. Do you see that? Baby, this is what this life is all about for Christians, living my life in such a way that God is made much of in my life. And at the very same time, as we make much of Jesus with the way we live, we get to enjoy life, enjoy him, enjoy creation. He made it for us. It's like we magnify the name of God. We make his name known in the world where we live, our little part of it, by drawing close to Jesus, keeping his commands. We have to be careful here. We do. We don't want the glory for ourselves. Oh, don't get me wrong. I want it. But we don't. We don't want the glory. We don't want the fame for ourselves. It's Jesus' fame, Jesus' glory. We want to make him known. Amen? But I say this, that we have to be careful because it's such, it's such a temptation to take the glory for ourselves. Because people can see what we are like before Jesus and after. They can see that we wrestle with sin and temptation just like they do. The great Puritan reformer, John Owen, maybe one of the greatest in our nation's history, would say a Christian's wrestling with temptation and sin is really evidence of our salvation. You ever think of that? That wrestling. Because non-Christians... They don't wrestle with sin. Baby, they embrace it. They love it. They flaunt it. They show the world how wonderful sin is. John Owen's advice for Christians is always be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Now don't read that the wrong way. It's not killing everyone else's sin. It's killing the sin within me. And you killing your sin. The difference between a believer and a non-believer other than that we're saved and they're not is that a non-believer's goal is to make something significant out of their own life. They try to seek happiness. They, they want to make their own name known. They want to seek what's the point of life for me? How can I be happy? They say things like be true to yourself. 
To have meaning and purpose even if they don't know what that meaning and purpose is. They look for it. They want to be happy. They want to. They long for it. And they think they can find it. Because it's always promised just over the next purchase. Right? That's just it. Just over the next high. Just the next relationship. But for a believer, we have our purpose. And what is that? That's, that's the first question that every Christian child Every Christian should know. It's taken straight from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Some of you are like, oh man, he said catechism scares you. Don't worry about that. It's just teaching. just means teaching. Here's the question, the very first one little kids know. What is the chief end of man? Answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Man's chief end, our purpose, our goal in life, what we were created for, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Oh, brother, sister, we're going to see this lined out even more next week in the life of John the Baptizer. Some of his last words he'll ever teach. And we'll see the dichotomy between Nicodemus that has just had this life-changing conversation with Jesus. But then Nicodemus leaves and he goes, I don't get it. And we see that played out against next week. We'll see John the Baptist in his life and how he's lived it. Boy, I hope you won't miss it. Well, one more thing before we land this plane today. And this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus comes to an end here. Remember when, you remember when Adam and Eve, they sinned that first time and they're hiding in the leaves. Do you remember we were talking about that? Do you realize that God the Father is spirit? He has no physical body. I know that blows your mind, but hear me out. That's what it says in John 1.18 and in John 4.24 tells us that God is by nature spirit, not physical. He has no body, God the Father. So if God the Father, the first member of the Trinity, and God the Holy Spirit, the second or the third member of the Trinity, doesn't have a body, hence the name Spirit, Holy Spirit, who came to look for Adam and Eve when they sinned in the garden and hid among the trees in the darkness? Because... We learned that Adam and Eve hid in the trees because they heard the footsteps of God walking in the garden. And and if God the Father and God the Holy Spirit are spirit and have no physical body, how are they hearing footsteps of a physical person? It was Jesus walking. The second member of the Trinity The Son of God, listen, in His pre-incarnate self. This messes you up. I know it does. But please understand this. Before Jesus comes as a little baby, before He's born to the Virgin Mary, this is thousands of years before that point. But this is what we call a theophany or a Christophany. The pre-incarnate Jesus is the God who is meeting with Adam and Eve before they sin. And when they sin and they hide from Jesus, the Son of God himself comes to find them. Please don't miss the significance of this in your life. When we, God's people, were lost, 
hiding in the darkness. Seeking to cover our sin and our shame. Seeking to hide from God and loving the darkness. Jesus came looking for his people. The sheep of his pasture. Jesus said in Luke 19.10, he says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. He didn't come to find good people. Here's what I want you to know. Jesus is coming to find you. Maybe you're hiding in what you think is the deepest, darkest place and you think there's no one way anyone could find me here. And yet, even though now you hear the gospel message preached to you and you know it's Jesus. You hear his voice. It's like you hear the sound of him walking and then you hear his voice as we have read these scriptures. Maybe you think you've done too much sin that that Jesus wouldn't want you now. Oh, but please understand, no matter what you think you've hidden, it cannot hide you from Jesus. Jesus sees you. Jesus is coming to save you. He's coming to find his lost sheep. Let's pray. God, our Father, I want to think of the awesomeness of what we have written, read and what you've written in John 3. And just the depth of your word changing us and shaping us and molding us. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's active here right now Christians you listen up the band's going to come on in just a second but Christians as you just continue to pray I want you to think about your life what in your life are you using to hide from God Is it pornography? Something that just seems evil right off the bat. I mean, is it is that you're self-medicating? Maybe just getting hammered after work just to take the, the edge off? Like you know you're forgiven, but you're still wrestling with that. Maybe moms, it's that you're you're trying to be the best mom. Are you trying to hide from Jesus? I mean, that's not a bad thing, is it? Well, it is if you're hiding from Jesus in it. Whatever it is. Christian, would you just take a moment to confess that? Jesus is saying, where are you in relationship to me? Maybe you you just take this time to just pray and and just confess that to Jesus to say, look, I've used this thing to hide from you in the the leaves of the trees and I just want to come home. I just want to come home. Just repent of the sin. Listen, you've been forgiven of it already because of Christ Jesus' death. If you believe in him as your Savior and Lord, so just get rid of the sin. Why don't you just take a moment to say, Jesus, I want to kill that sin in me. Would you help me war against it? And as you continue to pray, if you're not a Christian, look up here. Just lock eyes with me. You see, the world has this weird thing that says, 
if you live a good enough life, you can go to heaven. The Bible doesn't say that at all. Here's what we know. What the Bible tells us that we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. His perfect, his perfect standard. You, me, we all have. But he says we can find forgiveness if we will simply believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And that this perfect Son of God died on the cross as a perfect payment for my sins. If you believe that, you have been born again. You've been regenerated. So what do you do with that? Well, first think of just talk to God. I mean, just do it in your heart, at the center of you, in your head. Just say, God, thank you for, for loving me enough to send your son to die in my place to, to pay for my sins. And then check this out. If that's true and your sins are forgiven and his righteousness has been credited to you, it means when God looks at you, he sees you as perfect as Jesus. I know that sounds whacked, but it's true. Because let's admit, you're pretty jacked up. Like you got wrong wants, wrong desires. That's all been paid for. You still want them. But here's the good news. Is you stand perfect before God. But now Jesus is going to take the Holy Spirit and start working within you to root that sin out. Slowly but surely, he's going to get rid of the sin in you. You're forgiven of it. But he wants to get rid of that sin. He wants to make you holy. We call that sanctification. So just pray, God, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to do this Christian life. Would you show me how? Would you teach me your word? And listen, just as your brother in Christ, I'm going to teach you. Brothers and sisters are here will teach you. This is your family. And listen, we're all jacked up too. We're messed up. We're just slowly learning how to follow Jesus ourselves. So we look to the word of God. That's what we're going to do. Join a D3 group. Get baptized. So pray, God, show me what I need to do. Show me how to live my life. And then pray this. God, from this point forward, I, I want to follow you, but I'm not sure how. Would you show me every step of the way? And brothers and sisters, I call you that because you're part of my family now. Is the cool thing is the Spirit of God is living within you right now. He will show you what you need to do in the moment. And Jesus promised you he would be with you through the very end of your life until you close your eyes in death and see him face to face. So end your prayer like this. Say, thank you for saving me. I love you, Jesus. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bentry Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit BentryChurch.com.